Hey guys, welcome to the Journeys series at Three Circle Church. We are having a great time this summer uh, in the middle of our summer series. We do one of these every single summer, an entire series for the entire summer. And we hope that as you check in with us now from wherever you are, maybe you're in a boat, maybe you're at a condo somewhere on a beach, maybe you're in the mountains, I don't know, maybe you're somewhere across the world, maybe you're on a military base somewhere. We're really honored to have you with us today. And we are taking this, this journey through the Bible. We're looking at different trips that people took in the Bible, just like a lot of us are taking trips uh, this summer. Uh, this Airstream that sits behind me right now, it's a great thing to take a trip in. But whatever it is that you decided to do this summer, one thing can be uh, assured, and it's this. The Bible has a lot to say to us about taking trips because people in the Bible took them as well. But they were not really vacations. <laughs> they were journeys that ended up teaching them so much. You see, the whole Bible is there to teach us about who God is. And in light of who He is, it teaches us who we are as well. So we are looking at the, these trips, these God-designed trips that teach God-designed lessons. We're going to look at another one today. We're going to look at the people of Israel and their big trip that they took throughout the Old Testament. But also we're going to look at the small journeys that are held within the big journey. Today we're going to look at two guys, Caleb and Joshua, and, and they are courageous characters from the Old Testament. But we're going to see how their story unfolded, why it unfolded to begin with, and how the children of Israel, when they were supposed to have just a few week journey to the promised land, ended up taking a 40 year journey in the wilderness. Welcome to the Journeys series. So before we get to Caleb and Joshua's story, uh, we need to know a little bit about the background. So the first thing you need to know is over the past few weeks, if you've been with us, we've talked about different characters. We did Noah, then we talked about Abraham and Isaac, and then we went to the incredible story of Jacob and how Jacob wrestled with God all night long in the desert. Well, then last week, uh, we looked at the story of Joseph and how Joseph was sold into uh, Egyptian slavery, but he ended up becoming the second in command of all of Egypt. It was an incredible journey that we learned so much from. Definitely some God-designed lessons in those God-designed trips. Well, guess what? Joseph grew up and, and, and became a man, and, and he had kids. And, uh, and out of Joseph's life, what we know is, as time went on, Joseph died. And there were all of these Israelites there in Egypt. 
And for a long time, they had it made as long as Joseph was around. But what happened is the years and the decades went by and Joseph died and the old Pharaoh died. Guess what? A new Pharaoh stepped into power. And the Bible says that the new Pharaoh did not remember Joseph. In other words, he had no connection to the heroics and the leadership of Joseph. So guess what? The people of Israel over time became a nuisance to the people of Egypt. And the, the new regime in Egypt didn't love the Israelites, didn't treat them with respect. And, and over time, making a long story short here, the Israelites ended up becoming completely enslaved to the Egyptian people. At the time, the Egyptian people were the most powerful people on the planet, in large part due to the heroic leadership of Joseph. So what we know is the people of God ended up in several hundred years of brutal Egyptian slavery. And then, if you know your Bible well, you know that the history of the Bible includes something called the Exodus. Moses, a man who literally grew up in Egypt, but he was a Jewish man, was raised up as an older man, 80 years old, to go back into Egypt and heroically lead God's people out of slavery. And that was just the beginning of the miracles. To get his people out of Egypt, God miraculously split the Red Sea wide open. It's one of the great stories of the Bible. And he did indeed rescue his people. The entire nation of Israel, some would say a million people strong, walked across dry land in the middle of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was defeated by God himself. And on the other side of that water, now the Israelites were free, but they still had a big journey ahead of them. And that's where things got a little tricky. Now, the people of Israel were a disorganized bunch of folks when they left Egypt. They were worn down from years of slavery. They had been held back develop developmentally. They certainly were in no shape to fight. They were very disorganized. But under the great leadership of Moses and Aaron and others, there in the desert, guess what? They got organized. They became strong. God took care of them. God began to teach them to follow Him. And they became an organized, really more of a military-type nation while they were there. And what God was doing over about a year time as he was getting them ready to go into the promised land because he had promised them that they were going to go into this land of Canaan, this land that he had promised them, and it would be theirs. And that's where we're going to pick up our journey today. It's out of this next piece of their long journey across the Old Testament that we're going to meet two of these courageous guys, Joshua and Caleb. But unfortunately, we're going to meet another group of people who were extremely negative. And today what we're going to see is that on our journey with God, we're going to be able to learn that we have to learn the lesson of believing and trusting God. And not just being uh, naively positive about everything, uh, but, but being biblically positive and being biblically uh, trusting of God's promises. That is what we're going to learn today. So we go to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 13. We're going to begin in verses 1 through 3. The Bible says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran. According to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. So as we read these scriptures, uh, right out of the gate, we have some lessons to learn here. We want to slowly walk through the Bible here at Three Circle and, and expose it, if you will, or expose uh, ourselves to the Word of God so that we can know what the Bible is really saying. Now, in our modern world with our modern sensitivity, sometimes there's things in the Bible that we have a hard time with. But we believe the Bible is true for all times and all places. And there is a principle we see right out of the gate here. The men were supposed to be leaders. 
the men here were leading. The Bible says that Moses raised up a man from every one of those tribes. Now, just so you know about these tribes, these tribes of Israel were based off of Jacob's sons. And we learned about him a few weeks ago. So there's a, there's a great historical stream, if you will, a great historical connection taking place here. But one thing that, that happens here is God tells Moses, I want you now, because they were so close, he says, I want you to send spies into the land to come back, do reconnaissance work, and let you know what's going on there. And, and when Moses chose the ones to do it, he chooses men who represent each one of those tribes. Now, what we understand when you take the entire counsel of the Word of God is that men and women are created equal. All right, there's not some kind of subservience going on here. There's not some kind of one's better than the other. But what we do know from Scripture, and we teach and believe here at Three Circle, men and women are created equal, but we are created uniquely with different roles. The Bible is clear that even in the, the New Testament, this doesn't change. In the church, the men are supposed to uh, lead by being pastors and elders in the church. And we hold to that teaching here at Three Circle. Now, that does not mean that women cannot lead. Women do lead in very wonderful and powerful ways here at our church, at all of our campuses. And women have roles of leadership in their homes. So it's not saying that at all. But there is a certain type of leadership that we see from the beginning of creation all the way through the Bible, including in the modern church, according to the Bible. And we see it here again. The principle is at play here, and it's the matter of headship. It says here that all of these men in Numbers uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, all of these men were heads of the people of Israel. That is a certain unique type of leadership, and it's called headship. We see it in Adam in the beginning of, of, of creation. We see it with Moses leading the children of Israel out of the Exodus. It, it, and so it's in no way diminishing the role of female leadership. It's just saying that we do have uniquely different roles. In my home, my wife and I have unique roles that God created us for. In the church, while men and women together lead and work together doing ministry here at Three Circle, we do all have unique roles. We see it played out here. And another thing we see here that's very important is God says to uh, Moses, I want you to spy out the land of Canaan, watch this, which I am giving to the people of Israel. This is important to understand. God promised that the land was going to be theirs. In other words, their eventual victory was fully guaranteed. There was no question that God was going to give them this land. There was no question at all that God was actually going to do what He said He would do. Now, this is true in our lives as well. There are promises in the Bible that God makes to us that He absolutely is going to keep. Our God is a promise keeper 100%. So the question today is, do you believe God's promises? What we're going to find out is the people of Israel did not fully believe that God would come through. We're going to see in this story, sadly, that because they were unwilling to trust God's promises, they're going to end up stuck in, in the wilderness for a really long time. He's telling them, I am giving you this. I simply want the people to go and do reconnaissance. So in other words, what's happening here is God's not calling these spies to go and decide if they should go take the land. He's simply giving them the opportunity to go over and decide how they're going to take the land. And we see a principle at play here. When God makes promises to us, He will fulfill the promises. But you and I, we don't get to decide whether or not we should obey God and trust Him. We, sh we do get to be involved sometimes in how 
we move forward. And that is what is happening here. So now let's take a look at what happens next. So let's continue to read our story here in the Bible. And you know, I'm outside here in front of this Airstream. And you know what? Some journeys, I bet some of you, if you're doing outdoor stuff right now, man, there's bugs everywhere, right? And I literally have these things that we have here on the Gulf Coast. They're called noceums, all right? You can barely see them, but they're flying all around me right now. And you may be somewhere right now and you may have some bugs on you, but isn't that part of it? Isn't that part of taking our outdoor journeys as people, right? So this is total authenticity right now. I'm out by the Airstream and I got bugs all around me, okay? So you and I, we're doing this journey together. Let's continue to walk through the Bible, okay? Let's go back to Numbers 13. Let's see what happens next. All right, verse 17. So Moses sent them to spy. So he sent these heads of their households, these men who were leading. He sends them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or are they strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. That's important instructions from Moses. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Bring some fruit back. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. The Bible's telling you that's why he did that. He, it was time for grapes to come out of the ground, and that was a big deal back then because they drank wine and they, they did all sorts of stuff with grapes. So Moses wants to know, hey, it's time for grapes to be growing, so if the land and the soil is good and fertile, there will be grapes. So it makes total sense what he is up to here. So a few things we get from these verses, again, as we slowly walk through the Bible. First of all, Moses did not ask these spies to help him decide whether or not the children of Israel should go into the promised land. That was not their mission. They were not there to say, yeah, we can go or we shouldn't go. That's not on the table. This was not optional. God says, I'm giving you the land and I want you to go there. This is not the purpose of the mission. The purpose of the mission was simply to gather information on how they should take the land and what they should be ready for. And those are very important distinctions. Also, it's clear that Moses wanted them to be courageous. He tells them here, be courageous. In other words, he knows that human proclivity, and especially this bunch, because he had already experienced on their journey in that year, year and a half in the wilderness so far, he had already experienced the Israelites massive proclivity to be negative. They were vastly tempted to become negative and down. And I mean, half the time they wanted to go back to Egypt. This was not an innately courageous bunch at this point. And it's understandable historically, everything they had gone through in some ways. But after you see God split the Red Sea for you, you would think that you'd be able to just fully trust God and do whatever he says to do. But, but we see the, the very powerful current, the undercurrent of negativity in fallen creatures' lives. That comes, that comes from our sin nature. And we have this magnetic pool to be negative. So Moses reminds him, he says, hey, while you're there looking at all the cities, looking at all the people, I want you to remember, in other words, to have a courageous viewpoint. Moses is trying to preemptively help them be courageous. He's saying, hey, when you look at everything, don't forget who God is. Don't forget that God has already split the Red Sea and defeated the Egyptian army. So don't be afraid. He wants them to have a new posture, a new lens to look at the world through, and that new lens is courage. So he's very clear about this. Another thing we see here, and it's an important scriptural principle, is that we should know our enemy. Moses wants them to come back and let him know more information about the enemy. Now, this is a spiritual 
lesson that we need to talk about for just a moment. Let's take a moment and explore what the Bible says about the need for us to know our enemy. So in ancient times, there was this Chinese military leader, Sun Tzu, and he is widely credited with the phrase, which became a military axiom, if you will, the idea of knowing your enemy. He basically said, you must know your enemy. But actually, uh, the credit should go to the Bible because the biblical principle of knowing your enemy is literally throughout the scriptures. Beginning here with Moses, uh, Moses obviously is going to send these spies out and, and under God's direction, to go and understand the enemy before we get in the battle. Joshua is going to do the same thing when he prepares later on in their journey to take the city of Jericho, which was a big fortified city. He's going to send spies and he's going to go check it out to know the enemy. This was a major part of the Bible. Then when you flip over to the New Testament, Jesus himself said the same thing. We should know the enemy. In Luke 14, 31, he said this, What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to be in a battle, you should know the enemy. That's part of it. Now, what you want to understand here is that when we get to the New Testament, Jesus really started making the transition from just knowing your enemy physically for physical worldly warfare to really understanding the spiritual side of warfare, the spiritual side of our battles that we fight. You see, we have a very real spiritual enemy. And in the same way Moses and Joshua needed to go and know who their physical enemy was, you need to understand that what we would call this in the Old Testament is a type. T-Y-P-E, meaning that these things, including this entire journey, is pointing to Jesus and pointing to the spiritual battle in the New Testament. And so the Bible is clear that we have a spiritual battle on our hands and we have a spiritual enemy and we need to know our enemy. So let's look at where the Bible tells us, and there's many places in the New Testament, but here is a great one that tells us we need to know who our enemy is. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and be watchful. That's kind of like the way Moses told the spies to be courageous. So, so Peter, like Moses, is giving us the way we need to look at the world. And he says, you need to be serious about it. Sober-minded means that you're not taking this nonchalantly. It's, it's the real deal. You are in a battle. And it says here, be sober-minded, be watchful, be aware. Here's why. Your adversary. So you have one, and here's who he is. The devil. So we have a very real spiritual enemy, Satan. And here's what you need to know about him. The, the same way the spies needed to... Tell Moses and Aaron and the guys what these people were like in the promised land that they were going to have to do battle with. We need to know that this is how our enemy uh, acts and behaves. He prowls around like a roaring lion and he seeks someone to devour. Now it's important to understand some things about our enemy real quick. Number one, he prowls around like a lion. He acts like a lion. But the Bible is clear there's one real spiritual lion, and it's Jesus, the Lion of Judah. So what you need to understand is that Satan is a very real enemy, a very formidable enemy, and we need to be prepared in this spiritual battle that we're in. But you need to know that, that Satan is limited in his abilities and his power, thankfully. And the Bible teaches us that. The Bible is clear that our triune God is omnipotent, he is omniscient and he's omnipresent, meaning he is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's everywhere at one time, not bound by space and time. Our spiritual enemy, Satan, is none of those three things. 
Satan is not omnipotent. He does not have all powerful. He is limited in his power. He is also not omniscient, meaning he is not all knowing. Satan doesn't know everything, but God does. Your enemy is limited. And then finally, Satan is actually not omnipresent like God is. So Satan can't be everywhere at one time. And I don't know about you, but I want to encourage you today that we do have a formidable enemy. The Bible says here, you better be watchful. You better be sober-minded, but you don't have to fear your spiritual enemy. You have ultimate victory over your spiritual enemy. In fact, James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Did you hear that? Now, that's exactly what the children of Israel, that's why I would tell you that the Old Testament points to the new. In, in the Old Testament, in Numbers, where we're looking, the children of Israel were guaranteed victory. This enemy that they were about to face, God had already weakened them and had plans in place. They were assured victory, but they are going to distrust that. You and I are assured victory, but what we must do is exactly what the Israelites were supposed to do. It says here, in order for us to resist Satan and win the battle, our main job is not actually doing battle against Satan. Our main job is our submission to God. Watch this. The secret to winning the spiritual battle is our submission to God. And the secret to the children of Israel getting into the promised land and taking what was theirs was for them to submit to God and do what He was telling them to do. So today, we, like the people of Israel, we need to know our enemy. We need to be serious about it, but we don't need to be fearful of him because God has given us the victory. So let's continue our biblical journey here. Numbers 13 verse 26 says this. So they came, so they went. They went out, the spies, and they went into the promised land and they came back. They came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them to all the congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. So they brought back grapes, right? And they said this, verse 27, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So right out of the gate, they come back and they say, you know what? It does flow with milk and honey. Now, flowing with milk and honey was kind of a phrase. And what it meant is that the land is abundant. It meant it had really good soil and there's stuff growing everywhere. And it's abundant and it's fertile and it's a, it's a beautiful and wonderful place. The climate is good. The moisture is good. All of these things were vital in that, in that time to find land like this. And sure enough, Another, listen, another reason for them to be confident in God is that when they got over there, it looks exactly like God said it would look. So this is proof that they had nothing to worry about. It's proof that God is being faithful. But then they go on. Look at verses 28 and 29. It says, however. Now that however word is, is a dangerous word. If they would have just stopped right there and said, so we should go go get it. We need to go. It's, it's time. But, but here's where they go negative. And so many of us have this propensity. And, and in fact, all of us do if we don't allow God to defeat it in our flesh and in our lives. We have this ability to go negative. So they go negative. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. 
Now, I want you to see that, that they've not totally gone off the rails yet. They're actually doing what they were told to do. They're giving a report. But in their report are the seeds of their negativity already. Because one thing you don't get is you don't get one mention of, we can handle this, we need to go. There is no excitement, there is no positivity, there is no vision. They're just giving this very stale report. And in it, there are these little traces of exaggeration. Like, they're very large. And this whole descendants of a knock thing is a big deal because the descendants of a knock is this idea that there are giants in the land. And what we know is in a few moments, they're going to claim to have actually seen the giants and the giants were destroyed in the flood. So there's this Nephilim idea and this idea in the Old Testament of these giants in the land. It's very mysterious. We don't know exactly what was going on. What we do know is there was the, these huge beings and creatures and whatever they were and there's a lot of mystery surrounding it, but we know they were destroyed in the flood. Well, what we have here is we have that legend that had always stayed in an oral tradition with the Israelites. So guess what? If you're going into a mysterious land and you want to scare everybody, a great way to do it is to bring that up and say, hey, we saw those guys there. There are giants in the land. That was a legend among the Israelites. These guys are trying to plant the seeds of negativity, and they're accentuating all of the negatives. At this point, they've given their report with zero positivity. But watch this, Numbers 13.30. We get introduced to Caleb now. Caleb and Joshua were both really courageous, God-fearing, God-trusting young men, probably about 40 years old. And guess what? Uh, they went as spies. There was this group of 12. They were two of the twelve. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and he said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Man, I love Caleb. Right out of the gate, can I just say, we should all be more like Caleb. Caleb is inspiring. He is courageous. He's willing to see when everyone else wants to go negative, he's willing to go positive. When everyone else is scared, he's willing to be courageous. And look what he says here. It, the Bible says he had to quiet the people, meaning that that negative report already has the people who are already so negative-leaning. They're already murmuring and talking and trashing the leadership and talking about how bad this situation is. So Caleb quiets everybody down, and he tells them, hey, we need to go up at once. Now, I want to talk to you for a moment about Caleb's positivity. Because sometimes there is a form of positivity that frankly is naive. And naivete is not what we need in the spiritual battle, okay? Caleb is not naive. And I want to give you some characteristics about Caleb's positivity that I think are admirable and should become aspirational for us. Like we can actually copy this and be like Caleb. And here it is. This is real biblical positivity. First of all, he does not deny reality. Not one time in his statement does he say, There's, it's not tough. Those cities aren't strong. Those people aren't strong. He never does that. He never denies reality. Real positivity, folks, is not burying your head in the sand. It's not pie, pie in the sky and it's not, uh, you know, fake it till you make it. It's not deny the truth. None of that. So, and I think some people really get tired of that kind of uh, talk in churches where it's like, don't you claim that you're hurting or that you're sick? What, that That's foolish. That That's not living in reality. Caleb is not uh, denying reality. But here's another thing. He does, what he does do is he recommends immediate action. Let me tell you something about positivity. Positivity is active. And he says, we need to go now. We should immediately go up. Let's go up at once, he says. 
one of the quickest ways for you to become negative is for you to drag your feet about following God on the journey He has for you. If you delay, you very positively could become negative, okay? So watch out for that. He, real positivity moves forward. He says, at once, let's go up. And he recommends that immediate action. And then finally, he demonstrates confidence. Look what he says. He says, we are well able to overcome it. He's confident. Positive, positivity is confidence. It's not misplaced foolish confidence. It's confidence. Why would Caleb not believe they could overtake it? He has evidence to say that they can. They've already seen that God can do all things. And over the past year, God had prepared them for battle. Caleb says, I'm not denying they're strong, but we're stronger. He says, I'm not denying it's going to be hard, but it, God is with us. Let's go do this. That is what real positivity looks like. And I would say today, as we learn from this journey, we could all learn from Caleb. Let me ask you this. Are you positive? Really positive? Are you a biblically positive person? Remember, it's not denying reality. It is taking immediate positive forward action, and it is being confident mostly confident in who God is, but also confident in what God has done in your life. So let's take a look at what happens next. All right, so let's continue the journey here because Caleb has stepped up and said, we need to go in, but man, there is a current of negativity and 10 guys are going to go negative. Look what it says in Numbers 13, beginning in verse 31. It says, the men who had gone up with Caleb said, we are not able to go up against the people. Now that's where they crossed the line. We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw, and here's the lie, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them." Now, they stepped over the line here because they were not supposed to report on whether or not they could take the people or whether or not they should. So now they're in direct rebellion and disobedience against God. You could maybe give them a little grace on their first part of their report. They're just, they're just saying, even though they exaggerated, they're just saying what they saw. But now they're making decisions. Now they're saying, we don't need to go. We can't go. We can't take these people. And then, and here's what negativity does. Negativity often will move from accuracy to inaccuracy, from truth to exaggerations, and then often to all-out lies. And that's what's happening here. We know historically that they did not see the Nephilim or the descendants of Nephilim because they were, they were destroyed in the flood. This is an exaggeration. There may have been some tall people there. They may have been some genetically tall guys there. But the Bible is clear that they are exaggerating here, and that's what negativity will do. Negativity will take you from truth to exaggeration to lies. And they literally are stirring the pot. Folks, can I just tell you, this is so like the world we live in now. We have 24-hour media and news, and a lot of their job is to stir the pot. I saw an article the other day that talked about the fact that today, real journalism isn't happening as much as it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, because real journalism requires money and time. People have to get on planes, and they have to travel all over the world and really learn what's going on in a situation. Do you know what most of your news channels now do? They have opinion shows. They have these big personalities that get on TV and on the radio, and they just spout their opinion for an hour. And it's not real journalism, but it's cheap. 
It's really cheap to do that, to just take a person that's loud and big personality, put them on the air for a while and let them just spout whatever they want to spout. And this happens on both sides of the political spectrum. And, and what they do is they stir the pot of negativity. And by the way, this can happen in churches. This can happen on ball teams. This can happen at schools. And what I've seen in my 43 years of being on this planet is that people have a massive pull towards negativity. And, and it can happen so fast. It can happen on a church staff. It can happen in the people of a church. It can happen in a home. If you aren't careful, you will quickly move the thermostat of your environments that you are in to negative. And it takes people like Caleb who are willing to stand up and move to real positivity to change the situation. And I just want to challenge you today. Be a Caleb. Be a Caleb when everyone else, and I'm talking at the ballparks, I'm talking about at your school. It doesn't mean you don't face reality. But be a person that looks for the positive and looks to accentuate the positives in a situation. Folks, today we don't need to be like these 10 spies. They stepped over the line. Uh, so what happened is the people began to rebel. Because of their exaggerated and even false claims about the promised land, the people go crazy. The people begin to murmur and cry out. They want to go back to Egypt. They want Moses and Aaron to be dispelled and expelled from the camp. They want them to be shut down as leaders. And Moses and Aaron literally collapse in front of the people and begin to cry out to God. Uh, let's take a look at what Joshua and Caleb, the only two positive guys, do next. So let's look at what happens next here in Numbers 14, 6 through 10. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephune, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. That, that was a sign of deep distress. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delight, watch this. That's what they're, they're trying to get them to trust God. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. They're preaching now, man. A land that flows with milk and honey. Watch this though. This is what they want the people of Israel to understand. It's important, verse nine. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us, which means we will eat them up like bread. Their protection, watch this, Joshua and Caleb were so smart and so spiritual. They said their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But look at the people. This is how powerful negativity is, verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. In other words, God's manifest presence had to save Joshua and Caleb. Let me tell you how powerful negativity is. Negativity, when it's in its full force, can literally blot out positivity. It literally can overtake the positivity. And that is what is happening here. But I want you to see that this just isn't negativity. According to Joshua and Caleb, and I believe it's true, a lack of faith in God. When God has been clear, when God has told you to do something, a lack of faith in Him is actually a rejection of Him. See, not making a move is actually making a move. It's making a move to distrust God. At this point, the people of God, because of their negativity, are in rebellion. And this is confirmed in Numbers 14, 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? God saw their distrust in him as despising him. How long will they not believe in me, he says. You see this? When we go negative, when we don't, we don't trust God, when we don't step forward in our journeys He has for us the way the Israelites did, He sees that as rejection. He sees that as a lack of belief. Look what He says. In spite of all the signs that I've done among them. 
In other words, God's like, what else do I have to do? And he might would say that to you and I. What else do I have to do to get you to trust me? And because of their rebellion, because they went negative, a three-week journey is about to turn into 40 years. They're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, what can we learn from this today on our own journeys? Well, we have a spiritual battle, as we learned earlier. And in our spiritual battle, we have all of the guarantees of the gospel in our lives, but often we do not trust it. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 11, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, not our own might, but His, put on the whole armor of God that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. The Old Testament points to the new. You and I have battles to fight as well. And the question is, do we believe that God has given us victory? Do we believe in the gospel? Do we believe what Jesus said on the cross, that it is finished and that we don't have to be afraid? And because of that, we can be radically obedient even when it doesn't make sense? I think too many of us walk in fear and we walk in disobedience because we're unwilling to believe the positive report of the cross of Jesus and His resurrection, that our victory is assured. We just need to submit to God and resist the devil, and he must flee. Now, let me tell you, Caleb was an awesome guy, and Caleb and Joshua end up in that 40-year wilderness. But guess what? All the other people that were over 20 that rejected God, they all died in the wilderness. But then there was a new generation after 40 years, and they got to go into the promised land. But there's two guys that God let go into the promised land, even though they were in that original bunch, and that was Caleb and Joshua. And when they got into the promised land, Caleb had been promised by Moses that he would get a plot of land. Now Caleb is an 80-something-year-old man. He's an old guy. I want you to hear what happened when they came to Caleb in the promised land and they offered him land. Watch this. This is in the book of Joshua, chapter 14. It says, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to them, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, and he said, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you've wholly followed the Lord my God. Now listen, this is old Caleb now. He says, And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as He said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, on this day I am 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day. That, listen how po- Caleb is positive. He's, he says, I'm an old guy. I'm still as strong as the day Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Verse 12. He says, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there. In other words, he says, you remember what they said that we should be afraid. He said, they have great fortified cities. He says, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out just as the Lord said. Old, listen, old 85-year-old Caleb. He says, I'm not done yet. And I believe that God, if he's with me, I can overtake this this place. And he did. And he went. And he continued to be, even as an old guy, positive Caleb. He is so stinking positive. So what do we need to unpack today? Because you got to unpack after every journey. This incredible story is so amazing. Here's what we unpack. Number one, God's promises must be grasped and acted on before they can be realized. David Jeremiah wrote those words in one of his great commentaries. 
And I believe it's true to this story. God's promises must be grasped and acted on before they can be realized. Secondly, the promises of God are not invalidated by human failure. Our actions can delay but never cancel the realization of God's promises. And that is so true today. And then finally, let me just tell you guys this. The journey of Caleb and Joshua and Israel is a foreshadowing of the spiritual warfare that we face as believers and our call to be courageously obedient to God. That's what God's calling us to do today. And my hope today is that you will confidently trust God on your journey.